Welcome to the Trad Geeks Podcast. Here are your hosts, Kevin Merrow and Mark Kephart. How's it going out there, friends? Mark here. Kevin here. And we got a special guest tonight. It's our good friend, Harm Carson from the great state of Louisiana. This is episode seven, and we're just going to be talking about hunting today. What are you up to this weekend, Mark? Well, my wife and I are going to visit my sister and brother-in-law out in York, PA. So that should be fun, even though there's absolutely nothing hunting related I'll probably do. That's still cool. You haven't seen her in a while. It has been a few, so it'll be nice to get out there and spend some time with family. Nice. Well, my wife's actually headed to Virginia Beach for the weekend, so... I have the weekend to do some shed hunting, which I haven't been able to get out at all. So I'm really stoked to do that. And I'll probably do some stump shooting and working on the new house. That's exciting. Can't wait, man. I've been having trouble sleeping because turkey season's only like a month and a half away. Gobble, gobble. (laughs) It's been pretty fun. I've already got the mouth mouth call in the car. I'm just going to stick to my box call and sleep calls. <laughs> I think I could pull up some of that audio that you sent me the other day practicing. Oh, dude. I just give up. Eh, it's all good. It just, I'm still horrible at it. I'm just never going to get good at it. Because uh, I hate, my problem is I do not like to practice. Especially... <laughs> A mouth call. I don't know why. I just get bored with it. Says the guy that runs a marathon last year. You don't like to practice, but you would train for a marathon. Yeah. So how's that any different? I don't know. I guess running a mouth call and sitting, <laughs> it, sitting in my truck's boring. <laughs> it's super boring. Like, I don't know. It's not a hard enough task maybe I, I don't i don't I, know man i have a good enough imagination that i when i'm practicing i can just picture in the future that tom coming into that call and me cutting and him roaring and just getting into that moment and then usually during the season i sit and call and nothing happens so you, i've you give me a grunt too that you just <laughs> blow into and i'm pretty good but i'm just not good at running a diaphragm call it's it's a, since I started hunting last year was my first tur- year hunting and turkey season was the first season I hunted with a trad bow, so it is a personal goal of mine before I die to kill a turkey with a trad bow without a blind. So we'll see what happens this year. <laughs> it's going to be tough, but I I think we can do it if we have the right setup. But and if there are blind turkeys that aren't all there up in the brain area. See, you know, I'm just going to probably use a blind when I'm by myself and you're not around. And then that way I can have my camera equipment, my slate call, my box call, and I'll just do my best. But uh, when we go out together, which will probably be every morning, <laughs> you can do the call and then I'll just sit there and, and shoot them. All right. 
if we can find any that's the problem hey we 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 called in a lot of birds last year yeah couldn't make it happen though which is always the always the downfall of you know that's kind of the norm with a trad bow you know it's a norm with a lot of different hunting but that's all right as long as you go out have a good time keep a good attitude it'll be fun a lot of good memories man yep well, let's get Harm on the air. Welcome to the show, Harm. It's good to meet you over uh, over the airwaves, I guess, cell phones and such. Uh, thank you. It's good to meet you, too. Let's get into how you got started in traditional bow hunting, Harm. For the listeners, uh, Harm has been traditional bow hunting for quite a few years. I met him over the internet, uh, so we've never met in person either, but we've uh, developed a really good relationship Um because of trad geeks and traditional bow hunting. So tell everybody where you're from, Harm, and how you got into traditional bow hunting. All right, yeah, man. uh, I'm actually from northwest Louisiana, and I grew up on a little farm uh, outside of town, and I've always been into bow hunting. Uh, You know, grew up, Robin Hood was my hero, just like every other kid, I guess, my age. (laughs) And, uh... You know, I, I started, my dad's always bow hunted, and uh, so I've always kind of been around it. And then I was first able to bow hunt when I was 12 years old. And, uh, I, you know, at around 16, I just kind of fell in love with it, and I totally quit hunting with a gun when I was 16. And uh, and I'd always shot recurves and longbows off and on. I had some that were, you know, sitting around my room, and I'd shoot them and uh, pretend like you were an Indian or Robin Hood or whatever, you know, <laughs> uh, just being a kid. And, uh, anyway, I, my dad had a buddy who, uh, shot traditional archery. And I remember when I was little, he, we were walking down a, a levee and there was a creek and he said, Oh, you see that snake right there? And I said, no, I don't, I don't see, uh, I don't see what you're talking about, man. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, he shot this recurve at like, I don't know, it seemed like forever when I was, uh, when I was little, anyway, he pegged a snake right behind the head and it blew my mind that he did that without any sights. And, it just kind of, it was something that stuck with me, uh, at a young age. And, uh, so, you know, the older I got, the longer my bow hunting career went on, I just kind of, you know, got, uh, grew, went back that direction and got more interested in traditional archery. And I was actually over at his house, uh, one day and he had a blackwood recurve shoot. He was just having to be out shooting in his bar. And he said, man, come try this bow out and i shot it and i was like oh i've got to i've got to get back into this i need to i I really want to uh give this a try so uh actually within a week of me shooting his bow i'd purchased my own and uh i went out on a limb and went ahead and bought a black widow and uh i've been i picked it up and he helped me out do a little did a little bit of tuning with me and uh, a lot of it was trial and error my first year bow hunting my bow is nowhere close to being tuned. <laughs> my my arrows would fly. You know, they look like fish swimming through the water. It was terrible. And uh, but anyway, I've been I've been shooting traditional. Uh, that was in 2011, actually. I've only been bow uh, traditional bow hunting the past four seasons. And uh, man, I, once I picked it up, I just I didn't have any desire to pick up my compound. It's been sitting on the bow rack collecting dust ever since ever since then. I think that's. You know, when I first met you, Harm, because I've been hunting with a trad bow now for four years as well, but 
it might have been your first hunt you had on YouTube. Uh, you shot that mule deer out of a tree yeah. stand. And uh, I watched that video on YouTube. I found it. I was searching traditional bow hunts on YouTube and found that one and uh, just got in touch with you that way. So that's kind of where our relationship started, I believe. But for anyone that hasn't checked out Harm's uh, YouTube videos, what what's your ID? It's Bayou Bowhunter or something like that, Harm? Uh, yeah, uh, Bayou Bowhunters. Bayou Bowhunters. So for anyone that hasn't seen Harm's videos, I'm sure you have at one point or another, but um, specifically you have a really cool one. It's a coyote hunt. Yeah, man, that was that was crazy. That uh, that wasn't even it wasn't even really a coyote hunt. It was uh, I was I was deer hunting, and uh, I you know I'd set up in a pine plantation, and it's, I was in a spot where I had a scrape close by, and I had been having a lot of deer activity. The scrapes were being torn up, and uh, I went in there with full expectation of you know at least seeing a doe. And mid morning, I heard. Uh, the pine straw crunching behind me and I turned and this coyote was trotting into the uh, pine thicket where I was and I tried to get my regular camera my main video camera set up but he was coming in too quick so uh, I managed to get my head camera on and pushed my main camera out of the way and turned and shot and I drilled him it was kind of it kind of you know one of those instincts and I know y'all had that situation before you know you draw back and you shoot and you don't even remember drawing your bow oh, back yeah. yep. and uh the, it ran off and i was like i, I think i just hit him <laughs> and uh and uh you know and after he ran off i could i could see the blood on the ground and uh you know saw him run off and and fall and uh man it was just a really cool experience you smoked that thing for sure harm yeah it was it was neat <clears throat> um before i forget I, for the listeners, I had Harm contact me this week and correct me on our podcast last week. And we were discussing, um, you know, different, different shooting styles. And we, we were talking about feel and shooting instinctive and Harm corrected me on the true definition of shooting instinctive. And it's more of a aiming style is that correct harm right right yeah uh it's not it's not a necessarily a way you shoot it's it's a way you aim uh and this is just from my experience and growing up reading you know you read stuff but unless you actually get the hands-on experience and you go through a lot of stuff it's hard to understand it um but the instinctive part of it is how you aim. You're you're going to have a form, or you should have a form, regardless of how you aim. Uh, you know, you have gap shooters, you have people who shoot split vision, you have instinctive shooters, and all of those people should have a form. They should have a shot sequence. Um, you know, whether uh, an instinctive shooter tends to have more of a dynamic, fluid um, form or stance. It's not you know your quote unquote T where you're standing upright. And, uh, you know, you, your, your body makes a T when you shoot. And I think that's what you were referring to as a form shooter, um, last week, but really even as an instinctive shooter, and I I consider myself an instinctive shooter, I I have a form and a shot sequence to where, uh, you know, you build up your muscle memory and you practice your form religiously when you're, when you're learning and you have to have a consistent anchor point regardless. And really the instinctive part of it is, 
get in your bow to shoot where you're looking and you can make, you know, you can tune your bow certain little ways to make it tune exactly where you're looking. If you don't have a bow that does it automatically and the instinctive part of it is, you know, once you, once you hit your anchor point, you just pick your, you pick your spot, you hit your anchor point and you just, you know, keep pulling through with your back tension and release, relax your fingers and release the string. And the air just goes where you're looking. Like you, there's no thought process of, Oh, well he's, uh, you know, 20 yards or 23 yards. And, you know, the gap shooters tend to, you know, there's a, there's a space or that gap between the end of their arrow and the target. And, uh, with each distance, you know, it's going to be, it's going to vary. And an instinctive shooter doesn't even think about the distance. They just take a spot and draw back, hit their anchor point and release. And, uh, honestly, I feel like if I had been shooting any other way except for instinctive, I wouldn't, there's no way I would have been able to shoot that coyote, uh, you know, moving like that. And, um, it's to me, to me, the instinctive shooting, uh, works better for bow hunting scenarios, uh, because you don't have to worry about distance. You don't have to worry about, uh, thinking about anything. It's just a matter of, uh, once I decide an animal is coming in, I pick my spot, ignore everything else and just kind of burn a hole through the hair that I want my broadhead to go through. And as soon as a spot, you know, a situation opens up for me to be able to move, I draw back, hit my anchor, and release, and it's just, you know, second nature. I don't think about it, uh, and the air just goes where I want it to. And um, so regardless of how you aim, you should always have a form, and uh, and you should always have a shot sequence. And uh, anyway, that's just that's my take on, on the aiming and uh, form and uh, being, being an instinctive shooter. <laughs> yeah, and I couldn't agree more, Harm, and that's kind of where – I was trying to go with that and where I think ever, you know, where you might've got confused is the feel side of things and, and mixing that in with instinctive because Mark and I, we think the same way. You have to have some sort of form to your shot, regardless if you're shooting, Absolutely. regardless if you're shooting gap instinctive or split vision, um, or any other methods that somebody might have. But, um, We've been reading a lot online where guys that are getting into traditional archery are shooting just quote unquote by feel. And they're saying they don't want to shoot by form because they don't want any other thoughts in their head other than just comfort. And and I've been trying to make posts stating, well, you have to have some sort of form and you should always be a, you know, try to practice good form but the more you ingrain that into your shot sequence, the the less you even have to think about it. And I'm sure you don't think about your form when you shoot at a at game or anything like that. So right, that's, exactly. Like that's that situation. Sorry, I mean, sorry to cut you off. No, man, uh, go ahead. But regardless of how you choose to shoot um, or how you want to aim, um, I mean, it's it's with anything. Whether you you play golf or, or whatever. I mean, the the it's all about details. Uh, you, you work in your form and unfortunately it seems like when you're learning it, it seems like a lot. You're like, Oh my gosh, I I have to, I have to think about all this stuff. You know, my, my grip on my bow, my release, how much tension I have on my string, how deep my strings in the, uh, in the groove of my finger, where my anchor point, what is my anchor point? Uh, my back tension, I follow, you know, there's all this stuff and you, it gets frustrating when you're learning because you, you feel like you have to learn all this stuff at once. And, uh, but really 
in the learning process, like accuracy should never be important, in my opinion. Uh, consistency is what's important at the beginning. Uh, the accuracy comes later, and you can tune your bow to make it make it accuracy accurate. But unless you're consistent, accuracy will be impossible, in my opinion. It's it's going to be a fluke if you're accurate. Yeah, that's, so that's like a... early, like early on, you get up close. Uh, and honestly, what I'll do, even if I, like, if I hadn't been shooting, I'll still do it now. If I hadn't been shooting my bow, uh, in several months, I'll get up right close to like a hay bale or whatever backstop I have. And I'll stand three, four feet away and I'll close my eyes and I will shoot for 20 minutes with my eyes closed. I'll shoot one arrow and draw back, hit my anchor, get how it, see how it feels and release, then pull it and do it over and over and over. And all that's doing is ingraining your muscle memory to where eventually you can just shoot by feel. You know, you just draw back and hit your anchor point and release it. And eventually, I think essentially that's the goal with everybody is to be able to not think about it. But the the it's kind of like playing a guitar. You know, you got to work through all the, the tough, you know, wearing your fingers out and being sore and the frustration. And then eventually, you you know, you can play, you can make music with it. And I think that uh, playing or, you know, shooting traditionally is a, a lot, a lot of the same way. Uh, you just, you got to work to the frustration and the, and the details of it before it becomes second nature. Yeah. And that's, that's a really good point too. And I, when I first started shooting, I kind of had, and one of the reasons why I think Kevin and I wanted to talk about it is the first few weeks that I shot and it, and I'm still new to this. I've, I've been shooting for a year. This Turkey season will be my second year going after them. Um, so it's been just over a year that I've had a bow period in my hands. But that, those first couple weeks, that first month, I didn't know anything about it. I was just out there shooting and kind of just going at it. And I was I was seeing groups come together at 10 and 15 yards that made me feel really good. And then when Kevin started teaching me about, well, you should be thinking about where you're anchoring. You should be thinking about these things in form. I felt like I was shooting so much worse right after I'd start working on that. But, <laughs> yeah. but a month, a month after that, I was shooting so much better than I had been or where I think I would have been if I would have continued down the path. So it's paying attention to those things. But I, I completely agree with you because that the white tail doe I killed this year was a lot like that coyote. It happened real fast. And I don't, I don't know what I did, but the arrow was in that doe and it was dead. And so, uh -huh. so it's, it's definitely, uh, I don't think there's a right answer to it. It's the, I think what works for individuals is what works. The guy that Absolutely. can, the guy that can shoot 50 yards and knows his gaps and pulls up a range finder and can comfortably shoot an elk at 50 yards, man, more power to you. I don't think I'll ever, right. I don't think I'll ever be one of those guys because <laughs> I know what I shoot like at 25 yards, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. It's, and it's a great thing to work at getting better at. Yeah. That's, that's one of those things. Like you want to practice to where when you're in a high tense situation, your brain, I mean, you're, you're going to have a hard time thinking to begin mm -hmm. with and you, you've got to have some sort of a sequence to keep yourself in check, but you also have to have the muscle memory there where you don't have to focus so hard on all the little details. And uh, it's just kind of a that, – that's why at the beginning practice on all of that is so important.
Yeah. And I think, I think too, the mule deer I killed in South Dakota, I was thinking about form and that actually helped me. I'm an excitable guy. Like I have that whenever I see game, I get that adrenaline going. I'll get like, I've got that buck fever type, um, to, uh, to who I am. That's just, I don't know how to change that, but that was part of that first deer that I had come in that doe. It was like, okay, I, I got to think about this other stuff. And that actually helped to calm me down for that one. Now the, the second doe that I killed, n- nope, didn't happen, but it, it definitely helped out there to, to calm me down as kind of a second benefit and to make sure that everything was good yeah. with a shot. Yeah. And speaking for the guys that don't want to think about anything, when I practice, I'm very particular on everything. My grip, my draw, my anchor. Um, you know, if I'm out past 30 yards, I do pay attention to gaps. So I'm like, I'm kind of anything under 30, which some guys might say I'm crazy for shooting 30 plus yards with a recurve or a longbow. <laughs> I really don't care, but Right. <laughs> those, those close shots, I have no clue what my gap is. I don't even really know where my arrow is, but out past there, my trajectory is so much that I have to have an awareness of where my arrow is at in relation to the target. So it's really worked for me. But, um, you know, when I draw back on uh, and the last the last time I shot an animal was with my son. It was at 35 yards. It was a doe. And I can remember everything in my shot sequence for that deer because it, it mattered at that distance. Um, right. But then in Florida, a couple of weeks ago, I shot a squirrel and a hog. I don't remember other, anything other than the arrow hitting the animal. So, you know, there is hope for those guys out there that don't want to think about anything. They just want that connection with the animal and not have to think about anything other than that. That if you do practice good form and practice it enough, that when it comes down to that moment, you're not going to think about your shot. Absolutely. I mean, that's like, you don't, you don't think about throwing a football, you know, you think, Oh, I got to throw it this hard because a person's so far away, you just throw it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it becomes the same way with, uh, you know, with the, with a bow, um, you just, you just get to the point where you just do it. And, uh, there's a sequence to it and it might look like you're not thinking about it, but there, there's a thought process there. Absolutely. And, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a definite big misconception for, uh, people that are getting involved in it. And, uh, I, I definitely recommend practicing and, and getting a form and a shot sequence down, uh, right off the bat. <clears throat> right on, man. Well, let's move on to, uh, to kind of what you like as far as a setup. I watched a couple videos of you taking some elk out of tree stands um, when you're setting up a tree stand, what are some things that you like to think about as far as location, um, where placement is, things like that? Well, a lot of it depends on, you know, uh, you got to look at your game and, and, you know, where you're hunting, what your, what your habitat, what your terrain is. Um, with the elk, what we do, um, that's pre-rut. Uh, we hunt the first week of uh, the Colorado archery season. And uh, it's pre-rut, and I've only been up there, man. Like I've been, I've been going to Colorado ever since I was probably two or three years old, and I've only heard an elk bugle maybe three or four times in my life, and it's just because we go, get there so early, and uh, so there's not really any rut action going on. Now you can call bulls in because they're curious and they're still they're starting to kind of you know check out the cows, but they're still kind of they're still hanging in groups. 
And uh, so what we do is, you know, we we try to find meadows where, uh, you know, they feed. And then if you get on the back side of those meadows uh, where there's, uh, like, dark timber, they'll go down to the dark timber and uh, hang out in the daytimes a lot because, um, you know, it's they're, they're able to get in there and get sheltered. And what we try to do in, like, mountainous terrain, and we, we do it here in Louisiana when it's, uh, you know, 285 feet above sea level versus, you know, 9,800 feet, 10,000 feet. Um, it, but the, the land features are, are extremely important. Uh, if you have a higher ridge, uh, with a low saddle at the top of it, uh, the, the game tend to travel at the bottom of the saddle, uh, rather than going over the peak of the ridge. Uh, so the bottom of the saddles are, um, you know, somewhere to look and, uh, and, same, same, uh, you know, on, on lowland uh, in Pennsylvania or, or, you know, even here in Louisiana, uh, if you find, uh, low, low spots, deer and, uh, game, they, they tend to travel to those low spots or, um, you know, and, and, and what's, what's weird, uh, that's why I said it depends on the area, uh, is because in some situations they want to be on the high, on the high ridge. They want to run the ridge rather than running the low, the low ground. And uh, that's where, you know, really putting your feet on the ground and um, paying attention to the detail is, is key. And um, personally, I think bow hunting success is all, it all goes back to the detail. Um, you know, you, you, you can look at the big picture, but uh, the details make the masterpiece. You know, you've, you've got you've to get to look at the detail, look at your tracks try to find where uh, they've been browsing on uh, your native vegetation and um, you know if there's some sort of mass crop like acorns or um, or something like that uh, you know uh, food plot wheat you know whatever it might be um, you you want to find find that area and then you can back trail um, and you know find good good travel patterns where they're coming from but a lot of that you know require most of it honestly requires putting putting your feet on the ground and getting out there and studying it. And what we do is, you know, we'll find, we'll look all these different areas and, uh, we find, you want to try to find obviously the most well, the well, you, uh, <laughs> I can't even talk the most well used trail. And, uh, and what I try to do is I try to back down from a food source if possible and get close to a bedding, uh, closer to the bedding thicket. And, uh, and I'll set up off, off of a trail, um, trail like that to to hunt and uh so that's that's how we usually find you know we'll you go it's easier to find where they feed than it is a lot of times to find where they bed but uh if you can find where they feed and you you really spend time studying it uh you can a lot of times backtrack it and vice versa if you find the bed you know a lot of times you can you can follow them away from their bed um uh, it's just a matter of what you what you happen to find first <clears throat> To elaborate a little bit about your tree stand setup, Parm, like what kind of height are you setting your stands at? I know uh, it, it's different for me uh, setting up a tree stand for my traditional setup than it is for a compound. And uh, Absolutely. How yeah, do, how do you to, do that and what kind of heights do you put your stands at? Yeah, like when, when I had to, when I swapped to traditional archery, I had to relearn basically change all of my setups uh all the setups that worked great before for my compound uh they didn't work out for me with the traditional bow um 
I wanted to be, you know, you want to be lower to the ground um, because you you don't want to be, you don't want to have those steep angles uh, that you do with the compound. And honestly, I want to be as close as I can get. You know, if if the air is going into the animal as soon as it's leaving my bow, that's perfect. <laughs> you know, uh, that's that's I do. I mean, that's bow hunting. That, mm-hmm. uh, it's all about getting close. You want to be close. So with that in mind, I had to change all of my my setups. My uh, compound setups, they were always anywhere from 18 to 25 feet. Some of them were even 30 feet off the ground. Uh, I like to get really, uh, really high up in a tree, um, you know, where you don't have as much of a chance of being busted uh, with movement. And your scent would even be that much higher. With a traditional bow, I've got some setups, man. I'm, I'm literally, I can almost reach up from the ground and touch, uh, touch the bottom of my stand. In fact, the uh, the buck I killed this year in South Texas, I was maybe 11 feet off the ground. I was I wasn't very high at all, and um, and but what you have what you have to think about the lower you get, you can't just put your stand on the side of a tree and call it good. Um, most of my stand setups now are anywhere between 12 and 16 feet, but I have to. I, I try to pick a spot where I'm going to be in a shadow, um, where I'm off of the trail, uh, where the game is going to give me, you know, a broadside or quarter and away shot. And back cover is crucial. Uh, you know, having stuff in front of you is great, but um, if they're if they're silhouetting you, uh, you're you're wasting your time just about it. Um, so I'll, I'll pick a spot. We have a lot of vines and uh, and it's, it's really thick down here in Louisiana and. Uh, so we'll I'll, I'll find a spot where there's a, a bunch of vines clumped up or um, even if like if you're in open hardwoods and, you know, you're looking, it looks like you're looking at a bunch of matchsticks, you know, just a bunch of a telephone poles sticking up and there's nothing, there's no real cover. Uh, what I'll do is I'll try to find a tree with a fork uh, because you're better off putting your stand at the base of the fork to where you become part of a tree trunk. Uh, where you look just like, you know, uh, a third trunk coming up uh, rather than a big blob sticking off of the side of a tree. So you you really got to kind of uh, – I try to put myself in the animal's shoes and um, – or hooves. And, uh, and you know, and you, you want to look and see, okay, well, from this stance standpoint, um, what, what am I going to look like? Uh, and if you can have stuff in front of you, you know, awesome. That's, that's way, you know, way – way better but um having the backdrop uh your back cover uh, is crucial um and then getting getting low i like to i like to be a lot lower to the ground in fact um i've gotten where i really enjoy hunting off the ground and uh setting up a ground blind is uh similar you know you don't want to just throw up a ground blind in the middle of open woods and call it good um in some instances you can probably do that uh louisiana deer are like ninjas <laughs> you, you can't uh i mean they, they just they'll, they'll bust you they won't they won't get close to it uh or you'll have to leave your blind out for you know a week or two before they even get comfortable um but in a, on a ground blind scenario i always try to find um, a tree that's fallen uh like if you can get up next to either the tree top or the root ball um that's sticking out of the ground and put your ground blind against it um or if you have a clump of trees or one really big oak tree uh try to put it up against that where it's in the shadow and uh and then obviously brush it in as well uh, as much as you can um or if you have just a bunch of vines that hang out 
uh, come out of a tree and go under the ground. Uh, and it kind of makes, like, if you scan the woods, uh, try to find a spot that's already got a blob there, uh, like a treetop or a really big tree trunk, you know, something that kind of sticks out, and then make your blind part of that. That way they're already used to something big being there. And uh, where you're, you don't just all of a sudden stick your stick your blind up in the middle of nowhere and they're trying to figure out what it is. How does uh, how's that ghost blind work for you, Harm? I know you got one here not too long ago. Well, it uh, it works awesome. I just wish it was one panel wider. Yeah. Um, it's. I mean, it will totally disappear. But uh, the one time I actually tried deer hunting with it this year, when I actually saw deer. Uh, I was sitting there, and it was maybe 45 minutes after daylight, and I heard a deer crunching up over my left shoulder, and I turned, and it was a young buck. He walked all the way up within 30, 40 yards, and, uh, and uh, man, he pegged me. And uh, But it was because he came over my left shoulder, and he was actually looking around those mirror panels <laughs> and looking at, at the back of the blind and looking at me. And I'm frozen, and, you know, obviously he didn't like like it just sitting there on the side of a trail and that was the other issue is i'd set up before dark and didn't realize i was setting up in the middle of a deer trail uh so that doesn't know that doesn't help uh but he blew out of there and i decided well let me let me shift my blind around and get it uh get it where i can look at that trail a little bit better well the problem was it put me uh in the same angle to a different trail i was in a spot where all kinds of trails came together it was a funnel uh at the bottom of a ridge and a creek and uh anyway about an hour later i had a doe come up a different trail and uh she did the same thing just busted me because they came in from the back uh or from the side of me so it's got four panels and i think if it had a fifth panel um it would work really well uh it works great it blends in really really well and i think if you have a scenario where you're on a field edge or you have something or you know the game is going to be in front of you or it's going to come in uh you know from like a forward angle uh the that uh ghost blind is going to be awesome i really think it'd be awesome for turkey hunting i'm pretty excited to try to uh try to turkey hunt out of it this year um but it's just a you got to be real careful about your setup because it doesn't fully enclose you and the game can walk up from behind you and uh, i think that's that's the only downfall of it other than that man it's 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 a really neat uh concept <clears throat> maybe i need to look into getting one <laughs> yeah yeah i think i think the the turkey hunt i mean it might even double as a decoy you know you just pull up <laughs> pull it up you might, and have them run at you you might get flogged <laughs> i might just be able to reach out and grab them you know right <laughs> you can you can kill them with your bow by beating them with it <laughs> switching topics harm uh talk a little bit about what your your bow and arrow setup is and uh your broadhead selection yeah, um, well, I have I shoot. I've been mainly hunting with my recurve. It's a Black Widow PSA three, and uh, it's fifty pounds at twenty nine inches. Um, and I draw the full twenty nine. I have a twenty nine inch draw, and because of my anchor point, I do draw the full twenty nine inches. And um, so my arrows uh, have been being the Eastern Axis arrows, cut uh, thirty one and three quarter inches. And uh, put a 75 grain uh, grain brass insert in there, and uh, I've been shooting the 175 grain Simmons uh, Tiger Shark broadheads. And uh, this past year, I actually swapped to uh, Easton Hex Arrow, um, and uh, the 
links and everything was the exact same, 75-grain rest insert. And um, I started shooting the uh, tree shark, the big, wide uh, Simmons broadhead. And I really like the Simmons head. They uh, they leave a really, really good blood trail, and uh, they fly really well. Um, and also my, my longbow uh, is uh, 54 pounds at 29 inches, and uh, it's a Z-bow stick, three-piece longbow. And, uh, man, they're both great shooting bows. Uh, both setups work really well. Um, what's really cool is uh, both arrows tune perfectly for the recurve and the longbow, so I can swap interchangeably, and it doesn't affect anything, um, which is unusual. You don't you don't find that very often, but I spent a lot of time this past summer to try to make it where I can do that, uh, mainly to save uh, save some money because that gets expensive. Absolutely. And, uh, it works for me as well with my uh, my zipper and my stalker bow. I have the same. Uh, one's a long bow, one's a recurve, but the, the arrow selection's the same. They both spine out well for each one, so that makes it nice. What To elaborate, what uh, spine arrow of axis are you shooting and the hex? Um, it's, <laughs> I've, I've had people balk at this, but, uh, for whatever reason, how I shoot, I guess it might have a lot to do with my, my monkey arm draw links. Um, my bows tend to call for a stiffer spine. Um, so I'm actually shooting 340, uh, a 340 spine out of a 50 pound bow. And, uh, I know most people shoot like a 400 or 500, um, out of that uh that style bow and i do they are cut uh just past center so that helps out a lot you don't mm-hmm. have to have as weak of a spine um but uh, i'm actually going to try to put it in a uh, 400 spine uh here in just a few months i'm fixing to start playing with my tuning and uh, try to get it down just to lighten it up because i'm wanting to go back to the eastern axis arrows over the hex arrows the hex arrows worked great but um it seemed like they kept snapping uh every animal i'd shoot they were breaking hmm. and um you know it, it do the do the job but uh, i don't want to have to buy arrows every time i shoot and uh, anyway so I, I, i'm going back to the eastern axis i believe uh just because they're more durable yeah, uh, I, I don't have it yeah they're tough they're real tough yeah you can't <clears> go wrong with the axis i I've shot three, no. three deer with the same arrow, I think, but you should be fine going back to the 400 arm, and, and that's actually not too unusual for me because my buddy Aaron has a longer draw as well, and he's shooting maybe 53 pounds, but I think he's shooting the 340s as well. But um, Yeah. Yeah, and the reason why I bring it up for anyone getting new into traditional archery and wants to shoot carbon arrows, the eastern axis are a go-to era for me the 500s 400s are gonna put you in the ballpark almost all the time depending on what kind of weight and draw length you're drawing but um yeah tell me a little bit about um your foc what kind of foc do you have on your arrows um it started out like um a few years ago i I wasn't really Real cons- I was just trying to get an arrow that was that would tune really good and fly well, and um, my FOC was probably around I don't know fourteen sixteen percent, and um, and it you know it worked great. I, I never really had any issues. Well, this last summer, um, you know, I read the Ashby reports and uh, I thought it was a pretty neat concept and it made sense. So I wanted to I wanted to try it out. That's why actually why I went with uh, hex arrows because they're so light. Um, 
I could, you know, keep the same spine and uh, and have a really light arrow because uh, I, I didn't want to really jump up in broadhead size because uh, I really like that 175 grains uh, and that tiger shark, and I didn't really want to get away from that. So I went lighter on my arrow, and I was able to get it to about uh, 22 or 23%. I forget exactly what it was, but um, and it worked out well. Um, you know, I, I was able to get good penetration and uh, on just about everything I shot this year. And, uh, you know, as long as the, my, my buck in South Texas, I didn't get great penetration on it, but I, like, I clipped several bones going, going through, and that's going to kill kill penetration. Plus, I had the... Uh, I had that big wide uh, shark, um, the widest shark there is, and that uh, it works great. I got in there real good, but um, I, I really think you know the. In fact, I know for a fact the the land shark or the tiger shark or the grizzly broadhead. You know they they all penetrate. Um, you don't have as much drag um, as what you do with that big broadhead. I just I was wanting to try it out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with them. A lot of guys use them and. Mark's actually shooting one now, but um, I'd love to give one a try, especially for maybe like turkey or something like that. But um, yeah, they're awesome on birds. We could talk for days about setup and stuff like that, but let's get off the more serious note here and uh, maybe have a little story from you, Harm. But you know, I just kind of closed up the story with uh, Big Ugly, the buck that I was chasing this year, and I've talked to you. Uh, numerous times over text messages i couldn't even tell you how many times about uh a buck that you named uh scissor hands i believe um if he's still alive i don't know i haven't talked to you for a couple months about him but if Man. You can, let's let's hear the story about him to wrap this up let's hear the story about this buck and how it started and i know it was a it's a roller coaster ride if i remember oh yeah man that it's it's a uh, it I forget the deer he's a six he's a six year old buck now and um, so when I first I first got pictures of him um, I was actually hunting a different buck um, and I, I have a spot where uh, I have a lot of persimmon trees and uh, the acorns fall uh, really heavily and uh, in this certain area and the deer come in they hang out early season well. Um, I was targeting this one buck and this young year and a half old squirrely looking buck showed up. I mean, his rack was all twisted up. He just looked goofy. And, uh, and I was like, man, that's a, that's an interesting looking deer. And, um, and I didn't pay any attention to him cause he was young. And, um, well the following year and I got pictures of him all that year and, um, and never, never actually laid eyes on him. Um, but you know, didn't, like I said, I wasn't that concerned with him. Um, the following year, I didn't get any pictures of him, um, but I was hunting on the far south end of our property, and uh, I was actually rattling. Um, it was mid-December, and I had this buck come crashing across the field, running right up to me, and as he was coming towards me, I could see a real tall, gnarly rack, and, uh, and I'd never seen the buck before, I thought. And he comes right up to this fence row um, 30 yards away, and he stayed on the back side of the fence, on the back side of the brush, and just paralleled me, and never came all the way in. And when I he got up that close, I recognized that goofy rack, and I uh, knew it was that young buck from from the year before. And uh, and that was the only time I saw him that year. 
Um, the next year, man, he was like a Hollywood movie star. He was on, it seemed like he was on every camera I had. Uh, he was always showing up. And, uh, that year, um, I was, I was still after that same buck as before. And, uh, and he kept hanging out with that buck. And, uh, he was an 11 point that year. Um, he had his left side was weaker than his right. And, uh, he just was kind of a twisted, tall, narrow, uh, buck, uh, just like I said, I, I just kept calling him that goofy looking deer. I never really named him. And, um, and I, that was the year that was actually the year that was 2011. Um, that was the year I started hunting with the recurve and, uh, and I wasn't targeting him, but I decided he is, you know, he's a mature enough buck, three years old. Um, I've never, I'd only killed that mule deer at that point with a traditional bow. And I decided, okay, if I see this buck, I'm going to shoot him. Um, it's not the one I'm targeting, but I'm not going to, I'm not about to pass him. Mm-hmm. And, um, anyway, I, I saw pictures of him. I mean, he, he'd be there, uh, five minutes before I got to my stand or 10 minutes after I left. Um, you know, always, always close to the deer, but never actually laid eyes on him. Uh, except for one night I was walking out and I actually walked up on him and, uh, he just sat there 20 yards away in my flashlight, just stared at me and it was just cool watching him you know do his thing and he 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 went his way i went mine and um and that was when he was three years old and uh at the end of that year he kind of moved into a cedar thicket and uh i'd I'd left him alone because a lot of times if a buck ends a season in a certain area they will also start the following year in that area because it's a spot that they feel comfortable with and uh and they'll a lot of times spend their summer um, and that last spot that they were like in January, February, uh, it's like a sanctuary. And, uh, so I left it alone. I go in there in the summertime. I actually put a little mineral lick, uh, salt lick there. And, um, and I put my camera on him and, uh, on it. And, you know, I didn't get pictures of anything until probably end of May. And between three years old and four years old, that deer blossomed into a, you know, a freak. He, uh, he wound up being 15 points, had eight on one side, seven on the other. I mean, just his points went crazy. They went everywhere, all kinds of mass. And, um, when he'd look at the camera, um, I looked at him and I actually showed a buddy of mine a picture and he was like, man, have you seen that movie, Edward Scissorhands? He said, that looks just like Edward Scissorhands <laughs> when he's holding his hands in front of him. And I was like, dude, you're right. So anyway, that's where Edward Scissorhands, that's, that's how he got his name. So, from that point, you know, I called him scissor hands or scissors. And, um, at four years old, I really started targeting that deer hard. Uh, I brought in, I had like four cameras and I strung them all in one area and I'd put, I'd leave the one where I was getting pictures of him most often there. And, uh, and then I kept backtracking, uh, and bouncing the other cameras around until I found the trail that he was coming in on. And he was actually circling like he would, uh, he'd always come in from the right, but I never could get pictures of him from the right. And I actually found out, uh, after moving my cameras around for, I don't know, two, three weeks, that he was actually coming in from a thicket way off to the left. Um, our, our, I guess from the, uh, from the east. And, uh, he was coming from, uh, from the east and circling around and then coming, uh, coming up to the, the mineral lake. He kept hitting that mineral lake after season started. So was he kind of uh, like jay hooking into that mineral lake? So do I a lot of times the deer will like jay hook into a bedding area or into the feed or a scrape. 
uh, to scent check it first. So maybe that's what he was doing. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, that's that's what it seemed like he was doing. But um, and only every, like every now and then he'd come in from the uh, from the east. But almost every time he circled and came in from the west, which is kind of unusual um, because the wind uh, that time of year always blows from the south. And um, it wasn't like I couldn't really figure it out because to me it wasn't really beneficial for him to circle circle the way he was circling. And uh, so I don't really know why he was doing what he was doing. I guess it was just a preferred route. Hmm. And um, so I, I never, I never quite understood that. Um, but anyway, like I'd, I'd followed him back. And during all this time, we hogs have moved into our property and wreaked havoc, and they totally will destroy uh, deer habits or deer patterns. Uh, if if you have a big buck and hogs show up, you can pretty much kiss that buck goodbye for a while. And uh, so the hogs actually did that and ran him off. And uh, and I found him a half a mile away, and the hogs moved in over there and actually pushed him back to this spot. And um, so I had I was fighting with hogs during all this too, but I managed to with the cameras find out the specific bed that that buck preferred. And one evening after work. I actually bought a deer stand on my lunch break because I didn't have time to go take another deer stand down. I went to Academy and bought a deer stand on my lunch break and I put it together, uh, uh, on the, on the lunch break. And after work that day, I ran out, snuck into the woods and snuck in about 70 yards from that, uh, from that thicket. And it was real thick. So I wasn't really worried about him seeing me and the wind was right. He was south of me. And uh, so I, I put the stand up in the tree and got up and got ready. And that buck came in and he was, it was right at dark. He was coming in and he locked up an oil field. I'm, I'm not far from oil field, from an oil field road. And an uh, oil field truck was driving out mm-hmm. and that buck locked up. And I had to sit there in the dark and wait. I, I, you know, I just sat there until it got dark. And, uh, and I had to wait till like an air, when an airplane flew over, I snuck out and got out of there. That way he wouldn't come on in with me being there and have a, and risk him smelling me. And, uh, so as soon as an airplane came over, uh, and I say that I live not far from an air force base. So they're really loud when they come, <laughs> uh, when they come over. So I was able to slip out. Well, that happened. I had three different afternoons that week where, um, I could hear him get up out of his bed, stretch. I could hear his antlers catching the limbs. Uh, the first evening, the truck stopped him. The next evening, he got up and walked away from me. The third evening, he got up and walked, I mean, perfect, came down right in front of me. And I made a 12-yard, should have been gimme shot, but it was a 12-yard uh, mistake, kick in the gut that I, I regretted <laughs> uh, ever since. I, I actually, when I shot, it was low light. I probably shouldn't have shot the deer. Um, but it was such a gimme shot. I could see everything, see his body really well. I could see his horns, um, just monster buck. And I actually hit him in the shoulder and I'm not sure what happened other than the fact I was shooting aluminum arrows at the time. And when that arrow hit for whatever reason, the insert of the broad where the broadhead screws in the insert split out of the side of the arrow shaft. So the arrow shaft failed and the deer ran off and I only got broadhead deep in that shoulder hmm. and the deer ran off dead South. We trailed him three quarters of a mile. Uh, I stayed up all night looking for that deer. 
went out the next day. I looked, I looked for, man, probably two weeks circling out there, trying to find buzzers, trying to find him, and uh, never found him. And, uh, I, you know, I thought, well, I killed this buck. You know, that's the end of scissors. I, I botched it. It's over with. And, uh, you know, done deal. And uh, the following year, a monster buck, three or – no, it was about five miles from my house, due south where that deer was running. A monster, non-typical buck scored 208 inches, was killed. Um, and the pitchers, a buddy of mine sent it. He said, is this scissors? And I was like, dude, that's that's him. Like, that, that he, he – I thought had thrown into this monster buck. It looked just like him. I, I didn't think that there was any way two bucks could look alike, uh, have that much character and live in the same area. Uh, but this year, two days before Thanksgiving, uh, I checked my, can I, like I said, when I saw pictures of that dead deer, I was like, I, I told my, you know, I talked to my brother, talked about it. This deer, that's scissors. He's dead. This over with, um, you know, I was bummed out. And, um, uh, well, this year, two days before Thanksgiving, I was checking my cameras, and I about had a heart attack. Um, this monster buck showed up on my Not camera. Not to interrupt you, like, but I'm pretty sure you texted me within 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably did. I, I think I texted everybody that even halfway knew about the deer or even cared about deer hunting. Uh, man, I, I, I like. Like I said, it was it was better than any Christmas present. Um, I saw that deer on my camp, my little view viewer, and uh, I, I just I kept I just kept saying, "No way, no way! I cannot believe this!" Because he's got his his right beam has a point that drops. It's not a drop time, but it's almost like a split double beam. And uh, he had it at four years old, and it's so like I mean, as soon as you see it, you know it's him. And uh, anyway. He, his monster buck showed up, and I was like, holy cow, this, that's scissors. And uh, anyway, I started hunting him really hard and, uh, you know, trying to get my second chance in, and uh, I never could figure him out. I guess getting shot in the broad getting shot in the shoulder with a broadhead uh makes you change your habits. Because uh, that deer, man, he, he was like a shadow. I couldn't figure him out. Um I couldn't, there was like no structure, no pattern to him. He was just randomly showing up all over the place. I only got him in daylight one time this year. And I, I hunted that spot religiously because it was the most consistent spot that he showed up. And uh, unfortunately, the last picture I got of him was on Christmas night at 11 o'clock this year. And I have yet to get another picture of him. I haven't found any sheds. Um, nothing but the deer he's pushing um he's definitely in his 150s he might be 160 inch buck he's just he's gorgeous he's a big 12 point beautiful deer and i have a feeling if somebody had shot him uh you know i would have heard about it because there's not there's not many deer at all in our area that um that are that class that quality and uh so i, I don't think i think i honestly think he made it but He's gone. He went two years without me seeing him, so there's no telling where he's living at now. But you can, you can, you can put money on it where I'm going to be hunting this next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to bring that up. I wanted you to tell the story, Harm. And... Yeah, thanks for pouring salt in that wound. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was more. It was more to lead into uh, this coming year when you kill him. Uh, we have it all documented. The story on this uh, this awesome right. buck. So. 
but we want to we want to wrap it up we want to thank you for your time harm and thanks for coming on the show and i know we could talk for days about this so we will have you back on the podcast here you know maybe closer to season or something like that but uh, my wife and i definitely want to give you a congrats to you and haley for uh, your engagement and uh, new house yeah man i appreciate that i appreciate that's awesome um we're i'm excited uh you know, big big changes this year. Might not uh, might not be able to hunt as much as what I was. So <laughs> I'm uh, I'm making the most of it though. She uh, she luckily likes to hunt, but hopefully I hadn't been too long winded this evening. But I appreciate y'all uh, no, allowing me the chance. No, to come not on at all, man. Up. My my wife follows you and your wife on Instagram and Facebook and everything else, and all the time I hear, "Oh, Harm and Haley, they're just so cute." <laughs> <laughs> awesome <laughs> but yeah man i, I want to thank you again and i know mark wants to say a couple of things here so yeah man thanks a lot that's a great story to hear from you brother it was awesome to uh to get to meet you man yes sir thank y'all uh it's good to meet y'all y'all keep doing what you're doing uh i really enjoy the enjoy the podcast enjoy the uh the films y'all have put out and uh that's an awesome website as well it's a good resource and, I uh, just appreciate what y'all are doing. Well, we appreciate you uh, helping the website out, Harm, because when I first got Trag Geeks going, uh, Harm let me post a lot of his information. But make sure you check him out at Bayou Hunter at YouTube, right? Bayou Bow Hunter. Bayou Bow Hunter at YouTube or on YouTube, I guess you could say. So thanks again, Harm, and uh, we'll talk soon, bud. Yes, sir. Thank y'all. Have a good evening. You too, right. man. Good night, man. Bye-bye. Well, that's all the time we have for tonight. As always, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can look our podcasts up on traggeeks.com or subscribe to us on iTunes. We want to thank our sponsors, Maven Optics, QU, Kestrel Knives, Zipper Bows, Stalker Stick Bows, Grizzly Broadheads, Black Widow Hunting and Tackle, KME Sharpeners, Three Rivers Archery, Covert Cams, Lacrosse Boots, and DeerLab.com. As always, stay safe and shoot straight. <laughs>